Hi everyone, welcome back to Adhere to Apologetics. Really pumped that you guys are here today joining us for a really important discussion here. We have Vocab Malone and Robbie Lashua. We're going to be talking about does Ephesians 1 through 2 support Reformed theology. Uh, we're going to be focusing on, on the ideas of total depravity and unconditional election. I'll give you a really quick format before we get into things. Uh, we have 10 minute openings followed by 45 minutes of live discussion. And we'll have five minute closings and we'll have about 15 minutes at the end for Q&A for just a few questions. Um, but before we get into it, we just want to give brief introductions for Vocap and Robbie. So if you guys can introduce each other and obviously you guys know each other on a personal level. So if you want to like embarrass the other guy, feel free to. Uh, we'll start with Vocab. I don't know if I have any embarrassing stories other than uh, I just remember Robbie going, yeah, saying, I feel like he always says, yeah. Yeah, I'm very agreeable. It's true. <laughs> but, and it's unfortunate that today I don't think he'll be saying, yeah, as much. No, so. no, probably not. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we've known each other. Well, we went to seminary together way back and we had some classes together. I mean, what, what years did you go to Phoenix? Sam? I was there, I think, 2008 to 2012. It's about the same time, I right? It, I think it's the same time frame. I think yeah. we're on the same trajectory. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That was yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah. I, I've known him so long. I knew him when he was going by his uh, full length name, Vocabulary, way oh, back. Yeah, right. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That's a dad joke, but I'm a dad. That's all I got. <laughs> Until I dropped it. Yep. That's right. Yep. I mean, yeah. Robbie was probably there when, um, I don't know, maybe some of the professors every now and then would have me do some rap or something in class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 One time we had you out. We had like a Super Bowl party that year. I think it was when the Cardinals lost to the Steelers. And true. you came out to to this church that a bunch of us got together and you did a show for the, the kids. It was awesome. Yeah, we were the halftime show. Which was fortunate because if you would have been the after show, all the kids were depressed because the cards lost. So yeah, half time was much better. <laughs> I agree with that because that that was everybody was all sad. Yeah, it was and pretty I depressing. Distinctly, I distinctly remember that. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. I think uh, I took the homie B Boy Drew. He was like a, a Christian break dancer who also spit some rhymes. I think he yeah. was there with me for that show and maybe MC Quest. I can't remember, but I think he did bring two other guys. Yeah, I yep. think so. Yeah, that was cool times. That was a, that was a minute ago. I remember that. Yeah, long time ago. A little bit ago. Um, so obviously we have Vocab and Robbie here. I'm sure you guys know Vocab Malone. There's links down below for his YouTube channel and all that stuff. And there's also links for Robbie's awesome podcast, Christ Culture and Coffee. Uh, both of those are in the description, but we're going to hop into things. Uh, whenever you're ready, Vocab, you'll have a 10-minute opening statement to talk about uh, what you see regarding Ephesians 1 and 2 and Reformed Theology. So whenever you're ready, feel free to start. All right. One final drink of water. <laughs> take your time take your time ah, and it's supposed to be 10 minutes right yes sir i mean obviously we're doing a little bit more flexible to say this isn't like a super formal thing it's just an important discussion so if you go a little bit under there's no pressure there I guess it's All just right. whatever god's foreordained i got you i agree <laughs> let me um set my own timer too so i'm just kind of have an idea of what i'm looking at all right excellent Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, it's one sentence in Greek. And Ephesians has eight other lengthy sentences just like that. Three of them we're going to be looking at today. Commentator Max Turner writes this about Paul's language. Quote, Ephesians 1 highlights three particular clauses central to the composition. Namely, 1-3, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. 1-5, God has predestined us to be adopted as his sons. And 1-9, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. The sections built around these three clauses 
provide the core of what Paul is saying. In each case, the focus is on the Father's action. He is the subject of the verb. God is to be seen here as worthy of praise precisely because he has performed the actions concerned. In the other three sections, God is not the subject of the actions. Rather, the focus is on what we, all Christians, have received in the Son or on what the readers have begun to experience through uh, the Spirit as a consequence of God's action. And there, I'm done quoting him there. Election is the focus of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Election defined is God's sovereign work of choosing some to believe, Ephesians 1, 11. The emphasis here on salvation is that it's of God. It's on God's action rather than human action. Salvation is God's doing from start to finish, not ours, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's an act, though, of beautiful grace, Based on God's will, Ephesians 1, 5, Ephesians 1, 9, Ephesians 1, 11. Scriptures such as Romans 9 teach as well what we're looking at here today, and it's this. Scripture repeatedly affirms over and over that we worship a wonderfully sovereign God. This amazing God is in charge. He is absolutely free to choose apart from any consideration of human actions. This is what's called unconditional election. And so he freely and wisely chooses out of his love. Why? Ephesians 1.11 says it's according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.12 says to the praise of his glory. Why else, though? Well, Ephesians 1.4 tells us that the elect are chosen in Christ, quote, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Per God's will, the elect will become holy and blameless. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, the triune God decided this would happen before he even created the heavens and the earth. He didn't have to. He didn't need to. But he did. Our covenant God determined. And if he determines it, it's going to happen. He determined to redeem the elect by the blood of Christ to forgive our sins. Ephesians 1.7. God himself guarantees the salvation of the elect because of this at the appointed time the elect will hear the gospel and believe an example of this is in acts 13 48 with the gentiles of antioch pisidia says when the gentiles heard this they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed or like we see in ephesians 1 13 and 14 in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, and until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here we are reminded that election is the work of the triune God. Ephesians 1, 3-14, in fact, is Trinitarian in its very structure. Watch this. The Father's sovereign electing. We see the selection of the Father in 1, 4-6. through the redemptive work of the Son. We see the sacrifice of the Son in 1, 7 through 12. And the Spirit's blessing. We see the seal of the Spirit in 1, 13 through 14. The spiritual blessings spoken of in 1, 3 for believers are received on the basis of the work of the Trinity. And all of this is unconditional. God chooses us before we choose Him. Our response in faith is a gift of His grace as is everything else related to salvation. No exceptions. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace you have been saved 
through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Election to salvation is not based on anything we did or will do. It's pure, unadulterated grace, and it's eternal. Before the foundation of the world, it says, from the beginning, Paul says in another place, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, before the ages began, he says in 2 Timothy 2.9, what God has begun in the past, he will most certainly accomplish and complete in the future. He starts what he finishes, and he sees his plans come to pass. No one can stop him. He's that big. He's that good. If you're a Christian listening right now, I encourage you to personalize this. God chose you, yes, you, in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 definitely describes God's choice, his divine election. I mean, look at the verbiage. What else is it describing, really? Scripture is filled with related language. God's purpose, God's intention, he sets apart, he prepares before, God's foreknowledge. These truths remind us that God's choice is not a response to anything we do or based upon foresight of upcoming events. No, God's choice, which he is sovereignly working out before our eyes in real time, that choice happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Cue the music. Before <laughs> creation event itself, Jeremiah 1.5 in a similar vein shows us that God knows us before we begin to exist. That is why an appropriate definition of foreknow is to befriend beforehand. God graciously befriended my friend, Robbie Lashua, way before I ever met him by the fourth floor water fountain at Phoenix Seminary. What's not to like about a friend like that? The implications of Ephesians 1.4 and the rest of this is that our good God has elected or chosen men and women from every background all over the globe to salvation in eternity past. And furthermore, that he chooses people for specific tasks. So it really is true. God has a plan for your life. And it is wonderful if you see it through the eyes of faith and trust. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you know you were created for good works, which God has predestined you to do? So walk it out, saints. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 tells us God makes the mystery of his will known, and it is according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. His will, his purpose, his plan, his time, <laughs> even his son. Salvation is 100% God all the way. That plan is described in 1, 9 as the mystery of his will. Mysterion occurs 28 times in the New Testament. It simply means here, God's great plan as he reveals it progressively through his covenants made throughout history. The king is building his kingdom his way. These actions display the authority, control, power, and lordship of God. He is king. What God intends is certain to happen for everything in the created world. As Ephesians 1.10 reads, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Listen, God's plan from eternity past is a wise plan because he is a wise God. And because he is wise, his plans are wise. Now let's summarize Ephesians 1 and let's see how it answers these five questions. When, what, where, how, and why. When. When did God's work of election take place? The past tense participle 
has blessed means it occurred in eternity past before the creation of the world. What? What are believers blessed with? With every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly realms. How? In him. This indicates the, the sphere of election in Christ. Christ is our head and our representative. Ephesians 1.10 and Ephesians 1.22. Why? One of God's stated purposes of election is that believers will be holy and blameless in his sight out of his love. Remember, according, though, as 111 says, to the counsel of his will and to the praise of his glory, 112. Now, as we briefly glance at Ephesians 2, which is really an extension of the argumentation put forward in chapter 1, we see that the object of the work of God here is dead people. This is why we, and I think we're both together in this part, reject the impossibility of a self-righteous work salvation. Dead people, they make zero contribution towards being made alive. As Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 exclaims, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We're the passive people in this action of the triune God. And verse 6 says, and raised us up. He's doing it. This is why those of us in the reform vein speak of monergism. This means there is only one energy or force taking the dead sinner from death to life. Synergism, however, and Robbie might define it different. That's okay. I'm not putting anything on him. I'll let him speak for himself. But generally speaking, synergism adheres to the idea of a mutual cooperation between man's will and God's power. It's a team effort at work in a sense. But dead people have no strength. But God does. In the language of Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, he makes us alive. He saves us. He raises us. And he seats us. He works. And that is why he is more than worthy of our praise. Amen. Thank you so much for that vocab. Uh, we'll go to Ravi now. Whenever you're ready, vocab went a little bit over 10 minutes. So if you need to go a little bit over, we will obviously uh, let you go. But whenever you yeah. want, you can be I, in. I'll start timing had, you on your I first had 10 word. minutes and 40 seconds. What do you have? I had 10.35. So, okay. you know, a little bit over, okay. but, you know. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll, I'll start. So Ravi's probably pretty mad about it, but, you know. No, I'm not worried, man. <laughs> All right. So um, with, with in regards to Ephesians 1 and 2, uh, the Calvinist doctrines of unconditional election and total depravity aren't mentioned in these texts. Uh, they have to be kind of smuggled in through assuming certain words carry uh, with them a weight of Calvinistic doctrine. And I want to point out how that how that's been happening, even in the opening remarks of vocab. So but first, I want to start with some points that we agree on. So we both agree that human beings are infected with sin and we're depraved to an extent. Uh, we both agree that human beings cannot save themselves. It's not by works. Totally agree with you, man. We both agree that God takes the initiative in salvation because he's good and he's amazing and he's loving and gracious and moved by such great love for us. He's the one who takes the initiative to do all of it, to do the work, to do everything. We both agree that God does the saving. Uh, man can't do any part of the saving or even contribute to part of their saving. We both agree that God chooses individuals. And we both agree that election and depravity are important doctrines pertaining to soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. The points of disagreement that I really want to hone in on, because, because if I agree with those things I just said, 
we can argue over that kind of stuff. Like I, I agree that God draws people. I agree that God grants people. I agree with all of those things that typically come up in these debates. But the disagreement I have is that I don't think that scripture, especially in Ephesians one and two teaches that depravity equals inability. Um, and that's the Calvinist doctrine of total depravity. It means total inability like vocab said, you're dead and you can't do anything when you're dead. When you're a corpse, you're dead. You can't do anything. So God has to bring you back to life before you can even believe in him. So regeneration precedes belief in Jesus. Regeneration precedes faith. And I don't think that that doctrine's taught anywhere in scripture. We have a different definition of dead. And so that'll be important to talk about as we go forward. I also don't believe that unconditional election is taught anywhere in scripture. I believe that Christ is mentioned in Ephesians 1 a lot. There's this phrase that vocab even brought up, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. This phrase is used nine times in uh, 1, 1 through 14, and it's used 27 times in the epistle to the Ephesians. So this is a big theme for Paul. What does it mean to be in Christ? What is in Christ? Are we literally physically inside of him? No. So what does this mean? And we'll need to unpack the ideas behind in Christ. Um, so I think that when you look at the structure, I, I pretty much agree, man, with what you said about the structure of it. Uh, yeah. In Greek, uh, 1, 3 through 14 is all one long run on sentence. Uh, in it, um, again, the in Christ is used over and over and over. It is split into three sections where we see what the father has done, what the son has done, what the spirit has done. So I'm in full agreement with that. But I think that verse three sets up the, the chapter for what he's talking about in this section. And he says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then verses four through 14, he goes on to list the blessings that the we have that he has been talking about in verse three. So um, this is where I think it's important to think through who the audience is, right? And if you look at the very beginning of the chapter, you see Paul say who the audience is. Here, let me pull this up real quick. It says, Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and there's debate on whether the in Ephesus is original or not, you know, um, but we don't need that, right, to be there, uh, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So that's the audience. And when he keeps appealing to us, He's appealing to saints, holy ones who are faithful and are in Christ Jesus, faithful in Christ Jesus. So he starts off talking about election and he says, blessed be the God and father who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So notice how are the us blessed? They're blessed in Christ, in Christ. And then he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for, for adoption uh, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So does he say he chose? Absolutely. It's there. You can't get around it, right? What did he choose? He chose the holy ones who are filling Christ, that's the us, in him who is Christ before the foundation of the world. The question you gotta ask here is what did he choose them for, right? And he tells us what he chose them for. 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. You notice it doesn't say that he chose who would believe in Christ. All he's, all he's claiming here is that those in Christ were chosen to be holy and blameless. That was a choice God made that those in Christ, those people who become united with Christ, would be holy and blameless. Right. And the problem is, is that we are in Adam and we are dead in our sins. Right. This is the position that we're in. And we needed God to initiate and accomplish salvation in order to give us a new head who is Christ. That's our new heredity who now we are in. And since Christ is in the heavenly places, that's where the blessings all are right now. They're hidden in him. They're with him. In Christ, we have been chosen in order to be holy and blameless, not to believe in him. These already are people who believe in him. They're the us who are faithful. He goes on and then he says that he predestined us for adoption, right? And again, if you don't incorporate the meaning of predestination that the Calvinists believe in on top of this word, right? All it means is that before predestination, that he he predestined, he pre-chose something. It doesn't mean that before all time, he unconditionally elected a certain group that would be forced to believe in him. And then he also elected another group that wouldn't believe in him and they'd be reprobate. It doesn't say that. So if we don't import that meaning onto it, what is it saying? That he predestined us, the faithful in Christ Jesus, for adoption, for adoption. Now, this is interesting because both of us agree that we are not holy and blameless yet. That's a blessing that's coming. Are we adopted yet? Well, some people would say, yes, Paul actually has something to say about that. He says, no, we're not adopted yet. Uh, he goes on in Romans 8.23, and he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Well, that hasn't happened yet, but it's a blessing that is secure because we are in Christ, because we're in Christ. Then he goes on and he says in verse 11, in him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What are we predestined for? An inheritance. And we don't have that yet. That's a future blessing that's coming, right? So is this talking about justification? Is that all that this is talking about? Or is he literally talking about blessings that we have to look forward to in the future? And then the big question on election is this. How do you get in Christ? How do we get in him? Verse 13 tells us exactly what Paul thought about getting into Christ. And this is what he says. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So how do you get in Christ? You hear the word of truth, the gospel, and you believe it. Nowhere in here does it say that we were elected to believe. In fact, it says that we get into Christ by believing, and then we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't regenerate us prior to our belief in this verse. It says you believe, and then you're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee. So I don't see the idea of unconditional election here um, at all. And like Vocab was saying, if God knows us ahead of time, which I think he does because he knows everything and we'll probably need to talk about omniscience, 
then how how is him knowing me not any type of condition at all, right? The, the idea that it's unconditional election to belief in being justified. I don't see the unconditional part anywhere because I don't know how at a point in time, God can't not know everything. And if he knows everything, doesn't that play into what he thinks and how he makes decisions? Moving on to depravity, um, when we get into chapter two, it says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's the thing that really needs to be discussed is what does dead mean? The Calvinists always say, well, a corpse is dead. It can't do anything. It can't move. It can't be animated. But this verse tells us what we're dead in because we're literally not dead. Not even non-believers are spiritually dead. They do things all the time. They have a will. They have emotions. They have a conscience. We have all these things. So we're not dead. What are we dead in? We're dead in the position of our trespasses and sins. That is where we stand before God. And there was nothing we could do to save ourselves and get out of that. Then he goes on to talk about you walked according to the position you were in because we're in Adam. And so you followed the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in obedience. But God, who's rich in mercy, because he loved us, okay, motivated by love, John 3, 16, God so loved the world, even when we were dead in our trespasses, okay, so not dead, dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And that's for sure the condition of all of us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, and then God makes us alive. And then at the end of verse 5, Paul says, by grace you have been saved. And he's foreshadowing what he's going to talk about in verse 8. So in verse 5, we're told about what happened. We were dead in positional trespasses and sins, but we were made alive in Christ, with Christ, because of God's great love. At the time, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then in verse 8, he tells us how that occurred. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. So it's true. We were made alive in Christ when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And what was the method? What happened? Faith. We trusted in the provision that God had made for us. And so I don't see total inability being taught in uh, chapter two, and I don't see unconditional election being taught uh, in chapter one. So I think, I think to help with the debate, the main thing we're going to have to talk about are terms, because we say the same terms, but we definitely define them very differently. So to make sure everything's clear, when we say the word election, when we say the word depravity, it would help if we uh, could define exactly what we're meaning and see if this text backs that up, or if either of us is bringing in our presuppositions of what that word means and placing it in the text. So that's that's the task at hand and, and kind of how we want to move forward. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Robbie and Vocab, for your opening statements. Now we're going to go to about 45 minutes of Q&A. I just want to say thank you to everyone who's tuned in, Rock Speed, Anu, Alicia, everyone else. Uh, we do have Nate moderating the chat, Super Nate. He's going to put some questions in. So if you have questions, feel free to drop them in the live chat. But for now, uh, we're going to 45 minutes of discussion. You guys can take this uh, wherever you want, and I'll time it whenever you guys get started. So, Okay. On. Okay, can I ask you a question? Sure. You, d you defined election as God's sovereign work to elect some to believe. Mm -hmm. Who defines election as that, and where is that, that in Scripture? Well, the basis of that particular one, uh, I can actually show you. Basically, that particular one uh, I grabbed from uh, it's 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 a, it's an adaptation of it. Sure, the Pocket Dictionary of Apologetics and Philosophy of Religion. I think that's what it is. Okay, uh, but uh, I would say it's uh, of course in the scripture. That's why I used it. 
because yeah. he he's telling them the reason why they're saved and they should give God glory is because they've been elected to salvation. But it doesn't say that they've been elected to belief anywhere. It says they're elected to sinless, elected to adoption, predestined to adoption. You know, I think chosen and predestined go together for election. Is that fair? Uh, well, they definitely go together. These are overlapping yeah. concepts. So, of course, they're yeah. not identical, but yeah. Yeah. So, so he tells us what they're predestined to, and not once does he say they're predestined to believe. Okay, so um, you said the way that a person's made in Christ is through their belief, right? Well, I well that's what Paul says in, in verse 13. Right. We, we don't disagree about that, but I'm saying you recognize yeah. that, right? Yes. And so, of course, God would understand that that's uh, the vessel or vehicle by which a person will be made uh, saved or whatever. That's how they— Well, I don't think—I right? I think, I think, I think that we—like, I don't think my faith saves me. Uh, Jesus saves me. Right, but does that make sense? It's the, so you're saying the reason I'm asking this is because you're saying it doesn't say anywhere they're elect unto salvation. You're elect to believe elect or to, to justification. Yeah. What I'm saying, what I'm showing by that is that, that you understand the way, the way a person's put in Christ is by their belief. Yes. So how can they be elect unto salvation, but their belief is not foreordained? I don't think it's talking about belief. Uh, elect unto salvation it's talking about elect for blessings that's why he says we have these blessings and then he starts listing the blessings that the faithful in christ have is salvation one of the blessings though um i don't know oh that's a good question i think it's a blessing well of course but is, is that in what he's him, talking have redemption about through his, through in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses yes this th isn't that salvation yeah that's yeah, I would say that's salvation, so but it doesn't say that we were chosen or predestined to believe that. But it's the just way we, claiming what we have. Right. So we are elect for the spiritual blessings. Part of the spiritual yes. blessings is the salvation. It's right there in verse seven. Okay. And Let's can you be made holy and blameless before Christ if you're not already in Christ? But verse no, four. But, the, but that's so what I'm you, saying. You, you can't have some Christ. things and not have the others, right? Verse one, he defines them as the faithful in Christ Jesus. So that's who that's the audience he's talking to. And then you think he's going back in time and telling them he does. Ephesians two is all about that. He's saying, let me tell I you agree. about the position you were in. That's exactly what he's doing, Robbie. He says in the beginning, here's where you are now because of what God did back then. In, verse, now, in chapter let me one, remind you, let me remind you in chapter two of where you were. He is going back in time. In chapter in fact, two, back no, I agree. I no, agree in that. both places. First, he goes okay. back before the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. Then he goes back prior to their own state of so, being sons of disobedience. Are you so you're claiming that when he says before the foundation of the world that that applies to the entire section of three through fourteen? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, that we, we should be holy and blameless. And then it says, yeah. "In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus." And but yeah. that's not the only places he says that. But those are two of the places. So this is this is this is one thought. That's that's a point of bringing out that it's one complete sentence. Mm -hmm. That's the whole reason. It's because so this is thought hangs together. Sure. We can't parse out different benefits of salvation and put them over here because you can't get any of them unless you're in Christ. So he he how is he not? ordaining the means by which a person gets in Christ as well. Yeah, well, because he, he, Paul's already talking to people who are in Christ. That's the audience, right? Like, you'd agree with that? Yeah, saints. 
Sure. Yeah. Saints faithful in Christ. He literally says that in, in verse one. And then he goes on to talk about the blessings that we have because of being in Christ. So I'm more of the corporate election side where Christ is the elect. Christ is the chosen one. Christ was the plan from before the foundations of the earth because he chose us how in him. Like, what does that mean? He chose us in Christ, right? The hymns Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I didn't exist before the foundation of the world. That's the point. Christ did. But Christ, but Christ did. That's, that's but, what I'm saying. But that's so, the point. Why bring that up? Because the, the whole point is you didn't exist. I didn't exist. That's uh -huh. why I said it's not based upon anything we do. It's only based upon the triune God of Scripture's work. There, We contribute nothing to this. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm with you that he, and that's why I said what I agree with, he does the saving. He initiates the whole thing. I don't think that he forces irresistibly us to believe. I think he provides an opportunity that everybody could. That's that's the contention here. So of course he does everything. Of course he starts. Of course it was the plan of God from before. But But when it comes to unconditional election, you define it as God sovereign, God sovereign work to elect some to believe. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm saying is, of course, to become perfect and holy and blameless in Christ, predestined to adoption as sons. Yes, because we're in Christ. Where is the believe part? Where's the born again aspect? That's what that's what I think the crux of the debate is. Here's the reason, though. You can't skip how they get there. It's kind of like um, sometimes with an atheist where you'll point out look this is this is showing the tomb is empty you know mm -hmm. first Corinthians fit and they'll be like uh uh sometimes they'll say i forget which passage it is they'll say something like yeah but it doesn't say that that he died or or the it doesn't sure, say, sure, sure. We're like well how did he get in the tomb then you know stuff like yeah. that i feel like it's like because it doesn't say what you're saying it says but mm -hmm. it's like that, that's how you get in christ but let me show you a different let me maybe, let well, me approach it a different way let me oh, let me say ahead. one thing about that okay. because because I I'd agree with you if it was just an argument from silence that'd be an issue, but verse thirteen tells he Paul tells the Ephesians how they got in Christ, they heard the word the truth of the gospel the salvation and believed in him and then they're sealed with the promise of spirit, not he elected for you to believe. Like it doesn't say that it um, says the opposite. You got in when you heard. Does that do you see at least understand what, what I'm no, trying to I, say? I understand, yeah. but this is this is part of the problem. Why this is why so I grew up uh mm -hmm. Pentecostal holiness, all that kind of stuff. I, this is not like you know, I didn't grow this, but this is why I switched eventually. Okay. It's because of of looking at this and understanding this is one place, is what I mean. I'm not saying this is the only thing. Sure. Understanding all the stuff that comes before verse 13 is relevant. The whole mm -hmm. reason why they believe is because they've been predestined and chosen. Robbie, if you don't think so, can anyone believe in Christ who's not predestined to salvation? Well, it depends on like what your definition of predestined, because if you're using predestined in the Calvinistic sense. No, no, the Greek sense. It literally means to determine or decide beforehand. That's what it means in Greek. It means to decide beforehand. It's two words put together. It means to decide beforehand. Yeah, decide beforehand. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. But if you're meaning to believe Who decided, though, that God. Robin? Wait, say it again. Who did the deciding? God decided, God predetermined mm -hmm. to send Christ. That's what I'm saying. Christ is the predetermined. He's the elect one. And if we have union with Christ, he's our new head. Like Adam is our head, which jacked everything up. And so if I become in Christ, I'm part of the elect. 
I'm part of that. Like that, that's, that's what I think it's saying because he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth because Christ was around and I wasn't. He was the plan. And so I think God predestines things. I think God predestined the plan of salvation. Uh, what I'm wondering is, I don't know why you believe God has to deterministically choose and pick who will believe All right. versus, we'll versus he predestined the plan and predestined to give people a choice. Why, why couldn't he have done that? I'll, an I'll answer that's a great place to go. That's what I was yeah. saying. Let me approach it from a different okay. way. So in, in, in Ephesians 2.2, 2, um, mm -hmm. you have a phrase that says sons of disobedience. Yes. And are you familiar with the verse that says God commands all men everywhere to repent? Paul preached that to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, right? Mm -hmm. So they would have to obey the gospel. In fact, that's a, that's a phrase too, to yeah. obey. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Can sons of disobedience obey God? Um, no. Okay. That's that's why he has to do it, Robbie. Is because but but, sons, uh, sons of disobedience, Ephesians two two, they can't somehow become sons of obedience unless there's a miracle that takes place, and that's why their whole believing in Christ that you rightfully mentioned, I, yeah. praise God. But yeah. it's rooted in God's predetermined choice before they were ever there. But see, it doesn't. This is what I'm trying to get to. It doesn't say that. It says the opposite of that. And I know what Calvinistic belief thinks, but it's not there. And I don't think that sons of disobedience can obey God, okay. but is, is admitting that you're screwed and you're going to hell forever and you need help is recognizing the good and obedience thing. Like that's right. It's, is it a work? Yeah, Cause I don't think belief is a work. Cause it reckon it means you're recognizing God's word over your, your own. It recognizes God's worth versus your own worth. That's, I mean, so it's a good work to believe. Yeah. Uh, repentance repentance is a good work i mean the bible okay. says uh, uh what is it bear fr uh, fruits along with i forget the phrase but repentance is, is certainly uh it's something that that is something that would be us obeying you know sure. you when someone when uh, john the baptist you know, this is a little bit different but or let's say uh, Acts chapter two that's a better example uh peter says to the crowd repent yeah they can obey or they can disobey yeah the only ones who obey are the ones who are cut to the heart Mm -hmm. This is a way to speak about circumcision of the heart. Mm -hmm. And that's why the regeneration, I would say it's more along the lines of like essentially simultaneous. Mm -hmm. I understand people putting things in order and all that essentially simultaneous with the belief. But, but okay. In Acts, so real quick. So do you want to get to back to the repentance thing? Cause that's important in Acts. They're cut to the heart. It says, mm -hmm. but it doesn't say God irresistibly cut them to the heart. Isn't it the message that they're hearing that cuts them to the heart? I mean, cause think about what does Paul well, say in Romans Spirit, 8? The Holy Spirit is doing the work there. Romans 8 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. It should say that the Holy Spirit irresistibly. <laughs> yeah, but Romans 8. <laughs> Do you know what I'm the Romans eight also says your the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those yeah. who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if we go to Romans eight, we see that those people can't even not be anything but hostile to God. They can't go from sons and daughters but of disobedience. This to is the point, though. That's about repentance, and I'm not talking about repentance because he here's the problem that you have with that with that slant on it. I think there's a lot of guys on my side of the camp that think repentance means a change of mind and they make it synonymous with belief. I don't think that that's possible in scripture. Like if you read scripture, I think repentance is a 
it, the word means change your mind, but it's like you're you're turning toward yeah, metanoia, and away. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. And so, well, it means change your mind. But I think in every instance where you see it used, it was you change your mind and you get your act together and, and you turn. Oh, so, you're, you're fighting against Fred Shea right now. I see. Well, not, not just him. There's <laughs> other just, guys. I'm just yeah. teasing. I'm just saying yeah. from our seminary background, all the uh, – Yeah. Know, so, all the guys but, but, but here's the point, man, is that the Gospel of John doesn't use the word repent one time. And the thesis statement of the Gospel of John is, I wrote this stuff down so that you can believe Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life in his name. It uses the word believe 92 to 95 times, depending on how you count it. And it doesn't use the word repent once in the Gospel of John. And so if repentance was a part of, of receiving the Gospel, if by believing I can be saved, he who has the Son has life, then repentance would have to be mentioned in the Gospel of John. And it's not. And so I do think repentance is a good thing and a good work, but I don't know if belief or faith is a good work. I'm not sure exactly. I mean, John does talk about repentance in the book of Revelation, but I'm, I'm yeah, I'm but the sure gospel, exactly. yeah, the gospel. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I'm just not sure exactly what that is. But the reason why, because you said, why does God have to? And the, the reason why I went to Ephesians chapter two was mm -hmm. to point out he has to because of the, the wretched state that we're in, the horrible state that we're in. Uh, there because would be because no we're unable. Notice, because we're yeah. unable, right? And notice what it That's says the here position. in Ephesians two two. It says we're by nature children mm -hmm. of wrath. So yes. it's really laying it on. This is why, if you notice, in between Ephesians one, the main section you and I just focused on, before yeah. Paul goes to Ephesians two, and obviously we know no chapter divisions. But if sure, you notice, sure. in between there is essentially a section of praise. You yes. know, prayer for Thanks understanding, prayer. praise. It's it's put in between these two things. That's, mm -hmm. We're not talking about as much because it's not as relevant to what we're saying, but it's interesting yeah. that it's there in the middle. And the reason is partially is because it has to do with this whole thing of look what God has done. Look how bad it was. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, I understand sometimes people are like, oh, Calvinists. Get, I'm not saying you said this, but Calvinists sure. get arrogant or this or that. To me, it should be the literal opposite, because if you mm -hmm. if we understand the wretchedness and how far God condescends, we're like, mm -hmm. whoa. And that's why. Where it says this is so key. It says we're by nature children of wrath. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do we get a new nature? You know there's only one way. Well, Jesus said how to get a new nature. We have to be born again. Yeah, so you have to be born again to become a child of obedience, and that is a yes. work of the Holy Spirit. That's why the dictum is regeneration precedes faith. I would say they're essentially simultaneous, but it's saying you don't believe out of some other ability you have because you don't have the ability. It's not there. It's not present in you. I agree that that's what Calvinists say, but I not I don't agree that we don't have the ability okay. to trust. We don't have the ability because because okay, you have to admit even non Christians still have the ability to trust people, right? Trust other people, believe yeah, in worship, other people. They worship the creature rather than the creator. Amen. Yeah, but they have the ability to tr put their trust in things, right? But not in God fully. No. But where does it? That's what I'm saying though. Like, there's no place that says we've lost that ability. It still talks about remaining the retaining the imago day. Amen. Okay. That's right true. throughout scripture. And we still have cognitive abilities. So that's what I think. What does dead mean? And I think Paul defines what it means in, in chapter uh -huh. two, verse one, we're dead in our trespass and sin. Like now I'm in Christ before I'm screwed. Cause I'm in positionally my, my, trespasses and sins and that's why the works of my life were terrible that's why i was a son of disobedience and even being in that state 
God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. And then he expounds on how in chapter or in verse eight. Right. So for every grace, you've been saved through faith. Right. So who made us alive? God. So did he make us alive after we believed or before we believed? After. So a dead man who's not alive. Well, we're not dead men. We're not really dead men. Well, why does it say dead? It means dead in that's, spirit, just like Adam dies in, in, in Genesis 1. God well, that's exactly – that's what I want you to define for me because I know like <laughs> that Genesis it always 1. gets into the corpse that dead means dead. But we're not actually dead spiritually or physically, right? We are certainly dead spiritually. Otherwise, you have a – so we put the Bible together as a whole. We go back to Eden. Yeah. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Mm-hmm. And yet they're walking around naked yeah. looking for some clothes. Yeah. They're dead spiritually. Yeah, but we're not dead spiritually because the Bible even lists non-Christians and talks about their spirit within them, right? Okay. Talks about You're right. In verse 2, it says the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Yes. What is that? And yes. whom, we, whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So what is the desire of the believer? It's not to choose God. Carrying out the desire of the body. What's the desire of the believer? To do what they want to do. And the mind. You mentioned we have intellectual ability. Yeah, mm-hmm. we do. But this shows even the calculations of, of the unbeliever are wicked and deserving wrath. In fact, yes. it's actually called the noetic effects of sin. Mm-hmm. The reason is touched as well. And that's why in their wisdom, they became more foolish. Romans 1, 2 speaks about the spiral. The fool is not someone who lacks an intellectual capability. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. this other It's this other problem that delves into foolishness. So you're saying that, but what are the sons of disobedience desires, Robbie? What are their passions, Robbie? What's the, yeah. what's the problem with their mind? What's their nature? All this militates against the idea that I just don't understand where are they pulling this ability to all of a sudden obey God and believe him? Where yeah. does that come from? How do they it's have that? It comes because God's still left it in us in the Imago Dei, just like non-believers are benevolent to other people. Just like when Jesus says, even an, even an evil father will get, won't give his kid a snake when he asks for a fish. There's still something. Those aren't meritorious works, though. Belief oh, is something. But see, belief, that's why belief. I don't think belief is a meritorious work. Like that's 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 you're smuggling that in, man. No, 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 no. It's the reform critique of the Arminian or non-reform position that they essentially turn belief into a work. We don't think it's a work because we think God is the one who accomplishes it. You're right. Yeah. On our on our rendering, it's not a work. The critique of your position is you're turning it into a work, and it's a work you're able to do outside of Christ. You have yourself mm. doing a good work outside of Christ. We don't understand that. But you don't think that non-Christians do anything good outside well, of Christ. We could discuss that, but notice you're, it's, you're changing the discussion. It's not about yeah. if they can do anything objectively good. It's can they believe? And I mean, that's where John 6 comes into play. I know we're in Ephesians 1 and 2, yeah. but that's where a passage like John 6 would come into play. And God that's, draws why, them. that's why I focus. Yeah, that's it says you. And that's even when you went to Romans 8, it says they they're hostile to God. They cannot please God. Yeah. Robbie, does belief in God please him? Yeah. Yeah, but it says but in Romans 8, 7, 8, they can't please God. OK, so you're saying that belief has to be a work of God, right? Irresistible grace. Right. The, the phrase the phrases themselves, I'm not interested in. Like, sure. if you notice, I, did, I tried not to be all like um, I mentioned monergism, but I try not to be all like hyper traditional Calvinist or yeah. something like that. My goal is to let's have a Bible study amongst mm-hmm. friends and let yeah. and let the audience hopefully not decide who wins. Hopefully, no, no, built, no. Built, hopefully be built. Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying you're saying that, but to be built yeah. up by it. And so, yeah. yes, you can use the phraseology. It has been used, sure. but um, it's just an emphasis on this 
beneficial action that God determined before we were ever yeah. there, according to the counsel of his own will, to the praise of his glory and his grace. Yeah, I, and I think you got to ask, what does he say is the action he's doing? And nowhere does it say he elected to for people to believe. And then when you get into dead, this is this is my per- perception, because I understand the Calvinist perception means dead means unable to do anything. But we're obviously not enabled to do anything. We can do a lot of things um, and even a lot of good things. But then this is this is where I think dead is. Dead is separation. Physical death for a human being is what? The separation of my body and my spirit. Spiritual death is what? Separation of, of my spirit from, from God's, right? That's that's spiritual death. Death is separation. And then look at what's awesome. In verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Uh, God made us alive together with Christ by grace. Mm-hmm. You've been saved. And then in verse six, it says, and raised us up, but it's, it has the same prefix to it as made us alive together, which is sin, like a synthetic or synthesize. And so it, it means, and raised us up together with him and seated us together with him. Because mm-hmm. the whole idea is that to have life, to be made alive is to be back together. So dead doesn't mean unable to do anything. It means we're separated and we cannot do good works to fix that separation. God had to initiate it, which he did in sending his son to die and atone for us. And then he says, this is what I want of you. I want you to humble yourself and stop trying to do it on your own and believe that I did it for you. And I don't think that that takes a, um, a work. I think, I think it, he had to do a lot of work in order to make that gift and offer. But I don't think that the faith is something he's forcing me to do. I think that the faith is something that people can choose to do if they want or not to do. So people can have faith in God on their own. Well, what do you mean on their own? Like, yes, said, I think they can choose, choose to, to believe so in the offer. They can choose own. to believe in the offer. How is yeah. that not contributing to salvation in some way? Because faith is instrumental. How how is that not contributing to salvation? Faith is the method through which you get saved. It's it's what God wants of you. Exactly. It's like the door. in order so how, for how, you how that, to have his his saving faith applied to you, to have his actions applied. So it's not my faith. Like it could be earnest, and it could be like like I could be a Mormon, and I could be placing my faith in something that's not real or true. You have to place your faith in the thing that saves you. So my faith doesn't save me. Jesus saves me and his work saves me. And he didn't have to do it, but moved by his great love, he came and he provided a way that every single human being could be saved through his death on the cross. But what he asks of us is that we would trust in him and not be trusting in ourselves. And so I don't think I know it, that. it saves I'm, I'm, me. Yeah. Robbie, I, I know that I'm trying to overemphasize that. So I know that. So yeah. let's go to Ephesians 2.8. Okay. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So mm-hmm. we both would agree grace is a gift. So notice if it's a gift, it's from some freely given, right? By grace yeah. you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Yet, it seems as if you just said the faith is their own doing. How does that oh, not yeah. contradict 2, 8, and 9? Yeah, well, because uh, this, the the demonstrative pronoun there, so it, l- let me just read it so I can make sure people are with us. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this, okay, so the this, the question is, what's this referring to? Is yeah, it referring to grace? Is it referring to faith? Is it referring to saved? 
What's the antecedent of, and this is not of your own doing? Well, it can't be faith. And honestly, bro, it can't be grace. And the reason for that is the this in Greek is a neuter demonstrative pronoun. And so uh, in order for it to be referring- I know that grace and faith are feminine. I knew that before I asked the question. Yes. I didn't. I, I thought you were going to split out grace and faith. I didn't think no. you were going to say no. it can't refer to grace either. I don't think it can refer to grace because grace is feminine too. And faith is feminine, right? Yeah, but that, so it that, can't be referring to either of those because they're not they're not linked. They certainly are linked. So so when Paul is doing this, I was I knew you were going to do some of that. I knew you were going to go there all the way. It's yeah. referring back to the entire concept of salvation. To I agree with eight, that hundred percent. And the basis is grace, and the I, means and sure. the means is faith. Yeah, I so don't think it's, it's referring not just grace and faith, but how are grace and faith not included? It's like this, Robbie. He's laying down this list of all the things God God does. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we're we're passive in all this. God is active. Mm -hmm. You know, you, and you can see it in English. We don't have you. You can look at the Greek grammar too, but you know it's the way it is. Yeah. All of a sudden, he introduces something that we did. Yeah, but yet it says right prior to it, or right after it. I'm sorry, it's not your own doing; it's a gift. Mm -hmm. How is that not referring to everything prior in the in the section of the thought? Oh, I see what you're saying. I don't think it's referring to verse eight at all. W what is it referring to exactly then? I think it's referring to the concept. I think it's even going back further into the blessings and all of that before, we, especially especially two uh, one through five. I could, this I could, this I whole could, thing to get agree with that, especially yeah. uh, if you look at Ephesians one fifteen. Uh, well, see, the thing is, yeah. it's kind of broken up because Ephesians 1.15, he uses the, the same demonstrative pronoun, yeah. and it refers back to the preceding section. So yeah, exactly. it's sort of broken up a little bit. Yeah. But I, I, I could say, okay, we could go back farther, but that creates that still creates a problem for your position because what you're saying is it refers to everything except for faith and grace. How are those the two exceptions? Oh, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's not directly referring to that word grace. Like that's not all that it's referring to. Does that make sense? Like I, some I people try to right. I didn't say what it was all it was referring yeah, to though. I that's what I that's, that's what I was meaning. Yeah. And I and I don't think it refers back to that word faith because of the difference in language. I think it's referring to the preceding section. But Robbie, that some of the, salvation is the gift. Uh I I'm pretty sure some of the words in the preceding section are also feminine though. Sure, so are you going to sure, leave sure, sure. out all the feminine and only include the neuter? What are you going to do? No, no, no. I'm not saying that it excludes those. What I'm saying is some people try to pinpoint all that it means is that one word. But I'm not doing that. And that's, saying, yeah, yeah. And neither you know, that, that's, that's what I thought you meant. It refers back uh, at, the, at the very least to the concept of salvation in 2, 4 through 8. And the yes. basis for that is grace and the means and faith. What this is showing definitively Mm -hmm. By the language, this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. That salvation in no way has its source in man. It literally says it's not from yourselves. Yet your position says it's not from yourselves except for the faith part. You were able to believe of yourself. That makes you the source of the faith. Robbie, mm -hmm. what is the source of any person's faith who puts their trust in God? Well, you're saying that the source is God gifted them faith. Along with everything else. Yes, it's true. I'm not just saying that. Yeah, 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 whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just that, is, but the whole it's thing. It's like yeah. when you um, open up a, a gift box and you mm -hmm. think it was going to be one big gift and there's multiple mm -hmm. gifts inside it. Yes. Yeah. One of them is labeled grace. One's labeled faith. What do you think the source then is, Robbie? I think that you have the ability to open the box. That's that's what I think faith is. You have the, like you just in the analogy used. Yeah, you can open the box.
So you're opening the box of what? Because I said that it was salvation. The gift the of box. salvation. I think we have the ability to so accept the, the gift then, of salvation. So you got a dead man opening the box, and he's the source of his own belief. Yeah, dead, separated from God, can't save himself. Not dead, enabled. That's the difference here. You're you're, you're infusing the the Calvinist position on corpse, but we're not dead to do anything. But I never said that. I don't. That, so yeah. I would say I find that to be a strawman representation to make things easy. Nobody's ever claiming. I, I don't think I've read a reformed writer mm-hmm. that has ever said when we say dead, we mean that they don't have a will. They don't can't because it says right in the, pa- the session sure. they have a passion. It says it's wicked, though, yeah. they, and or they couldn't do anything that would be deemed good in some way. That's mm-hmm. why Jesus says what you said. We are saying in relationship to what Paul is talking about mm-hmm. in this 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 key section here is by mm-hmm. grace through faith. They are not able to do that because they are dead. Otherwise, it makes dead not really mean anything. It's kind of like, um, was it in Princess Bride? What's the show? Oh, he's mostly dead. I yeah, show mo- almost dead. Yeah, mostly yeah, you, dead. You yeah, got sure. almost dead here. Yeah. Well, but, but let me that's show what, you one last thing. I was well, hold on. I, from, just, I really do want to say, like, what are you – how are you defining dead here? Because you said, well, Adam and Eve died. Yeah, but they didn't die. That was my point. Unless you yeah. accept it the way I accept it then you have a contradiction in the concept. I agree that something in us died, but I don't think it was our will to be able to choose good. What what is okay, so let's focus on will. Yeah. Synonym is passion. What was happening with our passions prior to Christ? Wait, According to this passage. Will, passion it would be emotion, wouldn't it? We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out okay, let's use desire then as a synonym because I think yeah. these are both wrapped up. Carrying yeah. out the desires of the body and the mind. Yeah. Now, what would be the desires of the body and the mind for the people he's speaking about who are Christians now? It tells you, by nature, they're children of wrath. That means everything they do deserves wrath, and they're in a long line, a train of others who deserve wrath. And it literally says that, like the rest of mankind. That's why it says, yeah. but God. It should say, but you arose up out of that and were able to believe. But notice it's all no. about God's action. There, there, name one action in here. That, that, that is the action that's significant in any way of those who were dead and walking around with dead mm-hmm. minds and dead. These are zombies. Well, I mean, if you They're go back to verse 13 in chapter one, it tells us how they got in Christ. Okay, they heard so, and they believed and they were sealed. Then I guess it is significant because I didn't want to leave too much, but I think it's relevant because it is Paul preaching. So I think it makes it a little bit. Are you going to go to Romans? No, Acts chapter oh. 13, which I read okay. in the, yeah, I read sure. in the opening. Yeah. So uh, the question I would ask before I go there is, can someone believe unless they're appointed to eternal life? Um, hmm. it would, uh, let's define what do you mean by all those things. Acts 13, 48. Okay. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to mm-hmm. eternal life, believed mm-hmm. why did those gentiles there believe because they were appointed to eternal life mm. isn't that luke in language for the same thing paul is saying in ephesians 1 this is luke's way to say the same thing about being elected before the foundation of the world they're appointed by who who's doing the appointing mm-hmm. it's a, he is literally explaining their belief that's mm-hmm. why i asked you before we went there can anyone believe unless they're appointed to eternal life my answer would be no yeah. It is not possible. It seems the, as if you think the answer – I don't even know what you would do with this, really. 
Well, the question I think you'd have to ask is, what does appointed mean, right? So you're you're saying it means God picked who would believe and picked who wouldn't believe. Well, that's what uh, Ephesians one says. He chose us. He predestined us. This decided to be holy and blameless. Not he picked us to believe. That's not it doesn't say he, that. That's not all he did. But to, that's why yeah. to put a point on it, I went there. Or or another great place is the opening of the letter to the Corinthians. Sure. Well, there, if we're gonna. Like, there's listen, man. more people who are lower stature that are believers, you, whatever way you want to term it, right? <laughs> you don't what? want to go there because here, here's the problem. I definitely that, want to go man. there because the okay. reason is because God chooses who will be saved. Why doesn't he choose an equal amount of rich and poor? Why doesn't he yeah. choose an each equal amount of noble and ignoble? He doesn't. Yeah. He glories in choosing the lesser at a much greater proportion. Paul literally uses the word chose in 1 Corinthians 1 again and again yeah. and again and again. It's where he I'm says, totally okay it's where he to says, go there. He, but it says he chose the foolish things of this world. He chose the weak things of this world, right? Amen. That passage. Yeah. yeah. Isn't weak and, and foolish a condition? What do you mean? I it, thought the, you believe in unconditional election. Weak, foolish, those are conditions. Ah, notice why God does his choosing. According mm -hmm. to the counsel of his will. To the praise of His glory. So, wh however He elects and chooses, because He's not a He's not a, a random He's not rolling dice or something like that. No, yeah. He knows the people and He does this. It's not a capricious or a random action with the with the all wise God. So, mm -hmm. when He selects who He selects, He does have His reasons. He doesn't always make them known. Like the early church would have never thought He was going to pick Paul. He picked Paul for a specific reason and a specific purpose, but yeah. it's not just Paul. It's every single person who is a Christian listening to the sound of my voice right now. And sure. he does it according to the counsel of his will. So what's part of the counsel of his will? A little bit of it is revealed there in First Corinthians. It's this. I get more glory when these people are not noble. I yeah. get more glory when these people are considered foolish. I, mm -hmm. I, I, I want more glory. I'm going to get more glory. God deserves that. I'm okay with that. So yeah, I get yeah, yeah. more foolish and more ignoble. See, this is this is yeah, actually but, the but Christian foolish, experience. But that's the thing that foolish and ignoble and weak are conditions. And you're trying to say he Un unconditionally you're, not you're looking forward to anything. Right. I, I thought I thought I was hoping the way I would explain it would clear it up, but you're equivocating on the yeah. on the on the condition. The unconditional election means God chooses regardless of any of our actions. And even those conditions people are put in, why are they in those positions? What did God say to Moses? Who's the one who made a man who can't talk or talk? God mm -hmm. says, that's me. Who's the one who put a person in, in any of these situations? That's him. Mm -hmm. So, but, so but what I'm saying conditions is, are he, the, the conditions are also grounded in his choice. Yeah, but it says that God chose the foolish things in the world. So it, it even is telling us where and when, not before the foundations of the world, in the world. Wait, 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 wait. You're, what do you mean? It, you can't have a contradiction between First Corinthians and Ephesians one. I don't think choose. there's a contradiction. I just choose. think it contradicts uh, your view of con unconditional election. So God doesn't choose before the foundation of the world. I think that God makes a bunch of choices through history, in addition to making choices before the foundation. But it says of the God world. has a plan, Robbie. Of course, He has a plan. But you don't think that God makes choices in our time space to to interact with us? God has already made a decree. The plan is being worked out. I mean, okay. you know the prayer of the early church in Acts chapter 2. You know the prayer of the early church in Acts chapter 4. Mm -hmm. Predestined beforehand that God uh, would send Jesus, and Jesus would be killed by wicked men. I agree with all of that, 100%. Okay, so, so but I don't think that that means plan, that God predestines every single person ah. to unconditional election. Just because – think about this. 
the fact that it says he did that with Jesus, doesn't that infer that this isn't how he's normally doing things? No, no, no. That's 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 because then why does he have to say it if that's just how it always is? That's probably that's probably one of the I think the weaker arguments. Okay. Well, tell me why. But well, because that would be an argument for silence. And the, the thing is, there's no you can't find any exception in scripture to okay. something that's not done under the sovereign work of God. Jesus literally gives the amount of hairs on a person's head as an example of the sovereign care. Well, he says that God knows them. Yeah. He doesn't God, give uh, it. But also God also determined the amount of hairs you're going to have in your head. He determines the mm. role of the dice. The reason why that example is giving casting of lots is to show something that seems random. Mm -hmm. Even something that seems random to us is pre-decided beforehand by God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so with that, I know your position. God predecided which of us would be enabled to believe in him. That's unconditional election. But that's not all. That's not all. Well, I mean, sure. how, how do well, you he determines more than that? Yeah, I'm right. just saying unconditional how you, election. How do you define predestined then? I'm, I'm not understanding how you I have think a, that he chose beforehand things that are going to come to pass or that have come to pass. Like, I agree with you that what the word means. Okay. I just don't agree with you that what your the theology is is imposing on it is there. When I read Ephesians one, it says God predestined us in Christ, so that that's a dative of instrumentality or it's a dative of sphere. It has to be one of those two. I mentioned that in my opening. Yeah, I mentioned about sphere. so in the sphere of Christ, much like I'm in Adam, right? Like I'm this is my position. I am a dirtbag and I'm a sinner and I'm a ch child of wrath. Did you choose to in be Adam. an Adam? No, didn't. You, you, so you didn't get to choose to be an Adam, but you get to choose to be in Christ. Mm -hmm. Even but though the Adam, Bible says you were chosen. Yes. But Adam, <laughs> no, man, like you're, you're defining it because Adam made a choice to throw us all into this situation. What, what there was choice a choice you, made. He's our federal head. What choice did you make to be born or to be born as a sinner? Did you make any choice? Listen, as the representative of our head, I know yeah. our, whole, our whole thing, the same with Christ, because he's the representative and he came in as man and God. Mm -hmm. He now offers here is a different heredity and you have to be born again. And uh, so that's perfect. Robbie, just for a second. You said here yeah. is the different heredity. That's yes. But in your opening statement, you said we were predestined to adoption. Yes. Robbie. Bro, predestined don't, to adoption is a future you thing. See, you know, you just described adoption. No, the consummation. We cry out now, Abba Father. Not in the mm -hmm. future. We cry out now, Galatians says, Abba Father. Because but our adoption is not complete yet. Already Paul says in Romans 823 that we're complete. longing for it. The consummation yep. is the resurrection of glorified bodies. The consummation mm -hmm. has not happened, just like the consummation of a sanctification hasn't happened. Consummation yes. of the new covenant hasn't happened. This is already not yet. Yes. But. You said in your opener, we've been predestined, and you said you, you tried to kind of limit it down to certain things. One of the things you eliminated it down to was mm -hmm. adoption, and you just said Jesus comes along and offers a different heredity. Yes. By your own reasoning, that predestination includes adoption. A different heredity means we're adopted. Yeah, You, you recognize earlier we are predestined in our adoption, and you just described salvation in those terms. I listen, this is what I think if you just want saying, that's why I'm saying Christ is the elect corporate election in Christ. We were predestined. If you're in Christ, you're part of the predestined to adoption. If you're in Christ, you will become holy and blameless. If you're in Christ, you have an inheritance. That's the, that's the key to it all is you think it's individual picking and choosing. It's and both. I think God picked the plan of Christ 
and the individuals that would come through that. So that that's that's the difference. Yeah, you got it. Like I do believe that we're pre you can't deny it. it says predestined to adoption. But what is that and how? In Christ. Okay. Let's in Christ. approach it a different way. Did yeah. God know before the foundation of the world that you, Robbie Lashua, would be saved? Yes. He knows all things and he knows all possible things. So even based upon God's exhaustive foreknowledge, yeah. Once God creates any set, once in any possible world, he actuates it. Yeah. Well, don't all you these think... things are now predetermined at that point. Um because God has exhaustive foreknowledge. Hold on, strictly I want to say something. No, no, strictly no, based no. upon God's exhaustive foreknowledge, God yeah. knows you'll be saved. Once this world is created, you are predestined to salvation. You're just because I'm going to quote early Augustine, just because God knows something will happen doesn't mean he causes it to happen. Because if that was the situation, then he causes every evil atrocity that ever happens. Right. So and I know that that's the, where Calvinism leads. I don't believe that that's true because God says I can't do evil. I can't even tempt with evil. I cannot lie. But can I say, quote well, Augustine too? Well, if you're going to quote later Augustine, where he changed with his manichaean These we call the two cities or two communities of men, yeah. of which the one is predestined to reign eternally with God, mm -hmm. and the other, and he's talking about predestined, it doesn't say it in that part, the other predestined to suffer eternal punishment with the devil. One other Augustine yeah. quote, and I can give you the sources if you want, I got it right here. When yeah, the sure. intelligent creation, both angelic and human, sin, doing not his will but their own, he used the very will of the creature, which was working in opposition to the creator's will as an instrument for carrying out his will, the supremely good, thus turning a good account, even what is evil, to the condemnation of those whom in his justice he has predestined to punishment and to the salvation of those whom in his mercy he has predestined to grace. Yeah. Do you believe you're predestined to grace? Um, I, don't, I have to study what Augustine means and when he said it, because after the Pelagian controversy, he reverted back to all this Manichaean Gnosticism that I don't think is Christianity. And some of the terms of predestination, so being predestined election, grace is, into. Do you think pre, just do you think predestined to grace is a Manichaean concept? Um, the way that well, the, yeah, the way that he defines predestined mean fatalism and determinism after the Pelagian controversy, because before he was completely Manichaeans uh, against have, Manichaeans don't have a concept of grace from a from a beneficent God, though. No, but they have the gnosis, the secret giving of the ability. They, they mm. have that, and that's what he incorporates. It's something you obtain on your own. No, it's a secret knowledge that has to be given to you because you're in such a state in a physical body that you so can't. When that's, that's, says, that's, spirit, that's Gnosticism. So notice it says here, one is predestined to reign eternally with God. He is echoing Paul there, where Paul speaks about in the heavenly places. It's with Christ, but it's saying we're there as well. We are also predestined to reign. And yeah. this this right here is very similar to that. This is not Manichaean or Gnostic. Sure. Well, I don't want to argue Augustine because I don't agree with everything he says, but I'd well, like to neither. argue what Paul says in Ephesians. Me neither. I was just – well, you quoted Augustine first, so I just brought yeah, out yeah. an Augustine quote uh, in, in response. Well, but that's the thing is when you get into – so you were saying about what God knows, and he knows all possible things, and he knows all actual things, and he mm -hmm. knows the difference between them even before he creates, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, of course, God knows who will be saved, but just because he knows who will be saved – doesn't mean he causes all of those things to happen. I believe that he could have created a world that the Calvinist believes we exist in. I have no problem that that's God's prerogative. He, he could have done that. All I'm saying is when I read the Bible, he doesn't describe himself as doing that. 
So I'm not saying he's limited to have to do it this way. He could have done it any way he wanted. But I'm saying the Bible talks about he wants us to humble ourselves. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Why does he tell us that if that's not something we can actually do? Because sons of disobedience don't obey. So you're, you're, this is going back to Ephesians 2. What you're telling me is sons of disobedience can obey the command to humble themselves. I'm saying they can't. Which I don't know. Can? Yeah, I don't know why you, of, you think that. Sons of disobedience disobey by nature, Ephesians 2 mm -hmm. says. They don't obey by nature. So that's why you need a miraculous work. That's why born again is a key concept in scripture. And just yeah. like you, the, the, the analogy is very important. Notice you have these born birth life yeah. analogies on one end. And on the other end, you have these dead analogies. So you're dead in trespasses and sin on one side. Then on mm -hmm. the other side, you're made to be alive or you're given new life or you're a new creation. Notice someone's doing the creating and it's not you. Yeah. Or you're born again and the spirit is the one responsible for it. All these analogies militate against the idea that a son of disobedience can say, that's the one command I can obey. I heard that. I, I can obey that unto salvation. I mm -hmm. now will believe. And if you, you said earlier, you said, God knows all things that will happen, but that doesn't mean he causes all things to happen. Yeah. Okay. So then what is the cause of your salvation? Well, God initiated it. Yeah. Okay. So we just hit, uh, I said we just passed 45, uh, so maybe if we can just give sure. Robbie a chance to respond and then we go to closing totally. statements. Does that work for you guys? Yeah, sounds good, man. So the cause of our salvation right. is is God, always God. He initiates it. He did the saving act. Atonement had to happen. In your view, if faith is the work that's meritorious to save us, then atonement isn't needed. We had to have atonement made in order for to be saved. That's what saves us. Jesus saves us. My faith doesn't save me at all. What my faith does is say, I'll accept you saving me. And I don't think that anybody needs to be enabled to have that. I think that we retain it in the Imago Day. So that'd be my answer. Awesome. Thank you. So we'll go to closing statements now. And if you guys have questions, feel free to put them in the live chat. I saw a few. We probably won't be able to get to everything, uh, but we'll get to what we can. But we're going to go to five minute closing statements. So uh, we'll give it to vocab whenever oh, you are no. ready. Feel free to go. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm totally in a totally different mindset. Um, There is one thing uh, <laughs> I want to read that I, I thought this I like the way this was. I think it relates. Uh, it's a it's a little book called Back to Basics. Uh, edited by David Hagopian. And at the end, page 224, there's a section called You Gotta Have Faith. And uh, I, I like this. I want to read this. I think it puts a bow on a lot of stuff. I had this selected. I didn't know if it would happen, but here we are. And he says this. As we have seen so far, justification should never be regarded as our work. It does not depend upon anything done in us or by us, not even the faith given to us by God. After all, we are not justified by faith through grace. Rather, we are justified by grace through faith. To be even more precise, we are justified by God, who graciously gives us the faith necessary to apprehend his grace on account of what Christ has done for us. Seen in this light, faith is simply the instrument through which we are justified, the empty hand God gives us to receive his free gift to us in Christ. Faith is not the basis or ground of our justification. Christ is. Accordingly, Scripture, when properly interpreted, never says that we are justified because of or on account of faith itself, but that we are justified through or upon faith in what Christ has already done for us. 
Faith is merely the instrument of our justification, which points us to Christ, who is the object of our faith and the basis of our justification. True faith involves a, a binding trust, whereby sinners, by God's grace alone, cast themselves in soul and total reliance upon Christ and his vision's work on their behalf, knowing what Christ has done for them. Paul had this binding trust in mind when he wrote that we are justified by faith, that it might be in accordance with grace, Romans 4.16. What he is saying is that there is something special about faith, which demonstrates that justification is based on God's grace. When we cast ourselves upon Christ, when we rest and rely completely upon him with saving faith, we thereby abandon all self-effort and demonstrate that our justification is, is rooted and grounded in him and him alone. And then uh, how, there's one other thing I want to read if I uh, I have like a minute left or no. no. Oh, okay. Excellent. I yeah, want to actually have three minutes. bring yeah, out plenty. some key principles and some key applications to try to make this somewhat of a practical Bible study. I guess I could put it that way. And I, I think these come out of the text. Um, and um, uh, I'll say the principles, then the application of the principles. So there's a practical benefit, hopefully, uh, for everyone checking this out. One thing, uh, four principles, God's sovereignty extends an eternity past before the creation of the world. It goes all the way back and all the way forward. Secondly, every believer has complete salvation from God. Next, every believer has a great inheritance waiting for them. And then lastly, every believer has the Holy Spirit within him. He's the seal mentioned there. Applications to that. Guys, we can rest in God's love. We can rest in God's love. It, that love is expressed to us in this complete salvation. We can rest in that. We can rest in Christ's work. Because of all that God has done for us, we're not supposed to just think of ourselves as so important. We should see him as so great. And so this should give us a bigger view of God. Not, oh, I was a bigger view of God. He's good. He doesn't have to do any of this, and yet here he is. It's grace. Enjoy the fact, everyone. If you belong to God, enjoy it. I don't mean sit around on your laurels. You know, this is why we study these things, and we witness, and we share the gospel and do apologetics. But enjoy the fact that we do belong to him. Enjoy the family of God. Tomorrow, when you're in service, enjoy the family of God. And to the Calvinists in the audience, think every one of us who is a believer was chosen before the foundation of the world. Enjoy that fact and enjoy the fact that we're going to be in the new heaven and new earth forever. And we're going to belong there as well. And you know what else we should do? I mentioned church tomorrow. Sing loud. Even if you got a mask on, <laughs> sing loud. Be grateful that God has forgiven you of your sin and given you this gift of eternal life, which begins now. Doesn't get taken away. It's eternal when it begins and it's now. That's why we've crossed over from death to life. And lastly, Thank God, the triune God of Scripture, Father, Son, and Spirit, that he, that they took the initiative in our relationship. Thank you for that, Lord. I hope today people were edified to God be the glory. Awesome. Thank you, Vocab. Even under time, so that's great. Uh, we'll give it to Robbie now. Uh, whenever you begin, you have five minutes for your closing statement, and then we'll go to a little bit of Q&A to wrap things up. All right, thanks. I would close out by saying that, again, there's no place in Ephesians 1 
or anywhere in scripture that says that God elected for people to believe. It's inferred based on a misunderstanding of total depravity, meaning total inability, which Ephesians 2 also doesn't say. Uh, Dead means separation, and there was something that died in us at the fall, and it was our ability to have a relationship with God. But he initiated and he sent his son to fix that problem because he loves us and he loved the whole world. And through that, we are given the offer to accept the gift of salvation or to reject it. I don't believe that faith is a gift. I believe that faith is an ability to trust in something you're persuaded is true and that God is drawing men to himself, that Christ must be lifted up, that he might draw all men to himself, that God woos us and helps us to understand that he loves us and he shows it to us through many different ways. Um, This is the same thing that Paul said in Romans chapter one. Romans one verse 20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that men are without excuse. It seems like if unconditional election is a true doctrine of the Bible, then men have a great excuse for why they don't believe in God, for why they don't take him up on the offer of salvation. The excuse would be that God didn't unconditionally elect them before the foundations of the world. That seems like a legitimate excuse to me. Also, I would say that God is in control and he He loves us so much. I would disagree with vocab that God's sovereignty extends into the past because in order to be sovereign, he had to have something to be in control of or over. And uh, before anything existed, I don't think he needed to be sovereign. I think God's sovereignty is a subset of his omnipotence, of his all-powerfulness. But I would agree that before the foundations of the earth, God is love. He explains himself as that all through scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his son. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest commandment is to love God with everything we've got and love our neighbors as ourselves. God's love in Ephesians 1 is what's said motivate him to send his son in order to redeem us as a people. God's love is huge, and I think it outweighs his sovereignty. Also, God doesn't just love us the elect or the, the supposed unconditional elect, God loves all people. And that's why he says it all throughout scripture, that Jesus was sent for all people, that he's not only our propitiation, but the propitiation of the whole world in John, First uh, John 2, 2. John 3, 16, obviously loved the world. God loves the world, us included, all people. And this is actually greater than the God who would do unconditional election. God's a, a bigger view of God would be to see a God who actually loves people who will reject him forever. A God who actually provided atonement for people he knows would never accept it. But he's so loving that he's willing to waste atonement. That he's willing to lavish it like that for people who will continually reject him. That's a bigger view of God than a God who only saved the people that he picked before time even began. God does love all people. He loves us and he wants us to go out and share it with with our friends and neighbors. And that's why, like Vokev said, apologetics and theology is a big deal. But if it doesn't translate into our lives and how we view the world, then it doesn't matter. And I think that God actually provides a way that all people can be saved and that I need to go out and I need to tell them about this way so that they can have faith in what Christ did for them on the cross. So thanks so much uh, for having me on, Zach. This has been this has been great. Good job, Vocab. It's fun talking with you and, and hanging out too. Oh yeah. 
Vocab <laughs> <laughs> wins for the echo. Not really. Um, all right. So what I'll do is I'll set the timer for 15 more minutes. We'll go to a little bit of Q and A. Uh, there were a lot of questions, so I'm just trying to gonna pick a few out. Hopefully, we're oh, gonna... there were people watching. That's great. There I'm were glad. a few people yeah. watching. I guess there are some people that cares what someone has to say. That's um, nice. <laughs> uh, first question here is from Roxby. It says uh, most of, some of these questions will show up on the screen. Some will not. Uh, this one won't. It says, "Is free will in conflict with predestination, or do these two things work together?" So I'll give you both a chance to respond. I don't know. We'll start with Robbie, and then Vocab. You can respond if you want. Sure. So no, of course it's not in conflict with uh, predestination. Is not in conflict with free will, um, because I think God predestined or predetermined to give us a certain type of free will. Now, I don't believe that we can do anything we want anytime we want. That's just not true. I can't fly under my own power. There's things I'm, I can't do. I am, uh, I'm confined to certain choices. But I am made in God's image and likeness, and I do have a will. And so the question comes down to what type of free will do we have? I don't know a vocab. I don't know what you think. But the typical uh, Calvinist view is that we have a compatibilistic free will, which is that we can choose to do our greatest desires at the moment. But it's God who gives every person those desires. So really, it's just a, a puppet who God is controlling to do what he wants them to do. I believe in soft libertarian free will, which is that we actually can make decisions between things. Not all the time, not all the time, but it's based on past decisions we make can enslave us from making future decisions later on. Um, like Pharaoh hardening his heart. Um, if you did heroin and you got addicted, you can't just choose not to be addicted. There's, there's, question, there's things you choose to do in the past that enslave us in the future because sin enslaves. But I do think that we have actual free will where I can choose to do other than I do. And that because of that, humans can be held responsible for their crimes before each other and also for their crimes before God, because they could have done differently than what they did. The Calvinist perspective with compatibilism is they can only do what their greatest desire is, and it's God who places that desire in them. So I don't, I don't see a conflict between God predestining those who are faithful in Christ to adoption. Uh, yeah, of course, partially depends how you define free will. Uh, a lot of us, myself included, uh, prefer the term free choice uh, as a way to describe what we have access to in our current in our nature outside of Christ. And I do think that things are, are related and tied in. In fact, in some ways, your biblical anthropology, uh, well, there's a spiral involved here. And so these things are definitely intertwined. Two things I would bring up that I think uh, show the relationship uh, in, in a way are John 1, 13, which says who were born. And it's speaking about children of God here not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so the question would be, how much of a role does free will, or, the, or how much of a role does it play in people being born again? The answer to John 1, 13 is nothing. Uh, and there's a similar verse in Romans 9, 16, where it literally says, uh, well, let's start in verse 15, where Yahweh says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16 is the kicker. It says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. He, he uses a negation there. Ooh, not on human will or exertion, but on God. And so those are a few things. And so I would say, okay, where is the free will in Romans 9, 16? And so questions like that lead me to go uh, to, to say, okay, we have a situation. This is the, of the will of God. And it is put in contradistinction to the will of man and the will of God uh, wins. And thank God, because otherwise my will would never bend to his. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. 
Awesome. Thank you. Uh, next question here. We'll start with vocab. It's from Arno. It says that why does Jesus teach people about hell to people uh, who have no choice in the matter? Why warn people of hell who are not going? Why warn those who are going no matter what? What's the point? Um, so yeah. you get the question here, vocab? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear the question. Um, uh, a few things I think are fascinating. Uh, this, this is somewhat of a, this can be a troubling scripture from jesus's half brother and it's in jude 1 4 and it says this for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our god into sensuality and deny our only master lord master and lord jesus christ i think that's a uh uh, can be a very challenging verse when we look at these questions. Another one actually would be in First uh, Thessalonians five nine. It says, "For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ." Seemingly indicating God has destined some for wrath. Otherwise, why say that? One more I'd want to share is First Peter two eight, and there it says, "They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined." to do and so um why does then god uh why does uh, god have warnings in scripture at all might be another way to refrain it. or why does jesus mention about uh you know in revelation the lake of fire and and hate all these kind of things why why is that well i'll say one thing is this is part of the means of grace to those who are elect meaning we don't know what's what it's going to take or what how uh the path that god will have for 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 us to be drawn to him but hearing about that, I can tell you, is a very real thing. I have a friend who went to the bathroom in a mall and picked up a Jack Chick Chack, which I'm not a big fan of these days, and it was all about hell, uh, was, was uh, scared at that time, and that's what got him in. And he's one of the strongest Christians I know to this day. I've known him for, for years, and it was because of this Jack Chick Chack he read on hell when he was going to the mall and had to go to the bathroom. And so I'm glad that Jesus taught about those things because that can be part of the means by which he draws men unto himself, which the Bible says they can't do on their own. Awesome. You have time for a quick response if you want, Robbie. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with the the guy who asked the question is that a lot of the warnings and the, the messages of Christ and the message of the Bible isn't needed if unconditional election is true. Like, I don't need it. It seems like a kind of a charade that God would give us this book, imploring people to be saved, saying, I want to convince you through these miracles. Jesus says that multiple times. If you don't believe my message, look at the stuff I'm doing. Like, I'm giving you evidence for why you should be persuaded to believe in me. But if unconditional election is true, what I have to believe is that Jesus is saying, look at the miracles I'm doing. Listen to the message. I'm trying to convince you, but I didn't pick you prior to the beginning of the world. So I know you won't. So all this persuasion is for nothing. Like it, it, we don't need the Bible. We don't need the message. We don't need scripture if Calvinism is true. And it seems like a cruel joke to me that God would tell me to go out to the whole world and preach the gospel when most of the people I'm going to preach to cannot choose to follow after him. He's making me into a liar, extending this gospel invitation to people if they can't actually believe it. So I would agree that there's no reason for the warning. Awesome. Uh, next question here is from Matt Bell. It's for Robbie. It says, do you believe God created time from beginning to end and everything in between? How do your beliefs on this affect Ephesians 5.1? Ephesians 1.5. Ephesians 1.5. Yeah, 1, 5. Ephesians 1, 5, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 
God in time. Wow, that's a great question. And uh, I think that God was pre-existent outside of time. And then he started and he created time, space and matter when he created our world. So I don't think I don't believe that um, God uh, is sitting there. There's two there's two types of theories of time, type A and type B. And I don't believe that God is sitting there with like back to the future DeLorean time. And he's seen Jesus still be crucified. And he's at the burning bush with Moses. And he's in the new Jerusalem in the future. I don't think that that's how uh, it happens. I don't think the past exists or the future exists. Uh, but I think that God in his omniscience knows what will happen in actual and in um, hypothetical. He knows all possibilities and all uh, actual things that will happen. So um, I don't think that that uh, affects my my reading on it. Um, I, because then you'd have to say God's dependent on what he's seen in time in the future to know what's going to happen. And he's always just known. He doesn't learn and he doesn't process. So um, I wouldn't say that that... Uh, yeah, that, that really affects uh, too much from what I said earlier about Ephesians 1.5. Awesome. We'll give you a chance to respond, Vocab. Sure. Ephesians 1.5 is awesome with this phrase, having predestined us to adoption as sons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, human humans, they do adoption. And this is a Greco-Roman context. They would uh, bestow different things upon uh, this child whom they would adopt. Love, resources, inheritance. And it's fascinating because adoption even itself is such a rife metaphor for the discussion of election because you have parents choosing the child that will be brought into their family. The child does not choose. They couldn't even make the choice to say, I'm going to be in that family. The human parents in this to extend the metaphor are the ones who say, I choose this child. And as someone who's adopted some children myself, it's a beautiful thing. I, I, I resonate with this, but here's what's crazy and awesome and epic about, our adoption as sons. And the reason why the emphasis on sons is here is so people could understand both men and women received this inheritance. So that it was in the Greco-Roman context to explain that, just so everyone sees that. God ex- can do greater than human adoption because those who, who he has elected, those who trust in Christ, he actually cannot just give them resources and a last name and all that, but his very nature in, in a very real sense, which is a very beautiful thing. And uh, I would draw that out of like John 15, 15, Romans 8, 15. So that's what I would say about that. Awesome. Thank you. We have one more question here before we wrap things up. It's from Soteriology 101, Leighton Flowers. He says, a question here for vocab. He says, are we raised to new life so as to believe, or are we raised through faith like Colossians 2.12 says? Yeah, I saw that in the, uh, the comments. And I was having a little bit trouble with seeing the problem with, uh, I, I think, what he feels as a, as a dichotomy. So the, the verse says, having been buried with him in baptism. So it's a past tense thing there. In which you were also raised. Notice again, someone's active, someone's passive. We're being raised. We're not raising ourselves. Uh, you were also raised with him through faith. So there's that instrumentality and the powerful working of God. So notice again, the emphasis is on what the powerful working of God. I mean, that, that's a, that sounds like a way to describe God's sovereignty, the powerful working of God. That, that really sounds like almost definitional monergism, the powerful working of God. It's not a team effort. It is not who raised him from the dead. So our new life and uh, what we receive through our resurrection, both spiritual and physical, is tied up with what happened to Christ. So here he is, uh, representative of us, as, as Robbie mentioned earlier and whatnot. And so this idea is that baptism is a symbol. And so this 
passage actually is kind of controversial, not really for the reasons he, he's raising, which I don't fully understand, to be honest with you. But it's been controversial in the context of is this tying baptism in some way with salvation or something? And because Paul does make such a close connection here, uh, most people who don't have a baptismal generation or view have said this is really speaking about sort of the whole of salvation. He's tying baptism directly in in, in there with that. Uh, because if you look, it's it's clear that's happening, but it's it's not saying, you know, you're ba- this happens the moment you're baptized. It doesn't seem because that's close to baptismal regeneration. So notice even uh, Soteriology 101 recognize we are raised. We don't raise ourselves. Someone else raises us in new life. How can we give ourselves this new life? Which another way to say is being born again or uh, a new creation. We're, we're, that happens in us. God replaces our heart of stone. So all the things, even in this verse, I don't see how it becomes difficult when I think of what an Armenian or a Wesleyan would have to do. And so uh, maybe we could talk more about that or something, but I don't fully understand the dichotomy that he's trying to to raise. Maybe Robbie does, uh, and he could say something more, but that's all I have for that for now. Yeah, awesome. We'll give you give it to you, Robbie. This will be the last thoughts before we wrap things up here. So any response? Yeah. I don't know if Leighton Fathers is actually watching because that would have been awesome if this is just somebody else who's running the page. Who knows? No, but, um, Leighton Flowers. The, the well, that's great. <laughs> so I would say that um, I think he's pointing out the instrumentality of how we get born again. We don't do the birthing. We don't do the saving. I think it's a misnomer to think that that's, that's not what we're saying. We're saying what happens then God initiates. What's the condition? The condition that God works with us, the currency that God works with us in is trust. He wants us to trust him, not to trust ourselves. He wants us to be looking to the work of Christ, not to our own. And I think that this passage even again mentions it's the instrumentality of faith through which we receive the gift. Faith isn't the gift. It's like if somebody wanted to, you know, give me a hundred bucks, which would be awesome. And they said, all you have to do is take it here. And I reach out and I take it and I have it. I put it in my pocket. I have it. Well, then if my arm gets cut off, did I lose the gift? No. Even though the instrument of how I received it's gone, I still retain the gift. And so the, the faith isn't the gift. It's the way through which we humble ourselves and and allow God to save us, to rebirth us, to begin the work, which is what this says, right? In Colossians 2, 12, that it was through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So it's an instrumentation through which God then births us. He's very kind in getting our uh, consent before forcing us into a position. And that's what love is. Love isn't kidnapping or raping or beating somebody into a position you want. Love is offering it, wooing them, and allowing them to make the decision for what they want to do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> Just like he did with Paul. Paul, come here. Yeah, sure. Well, one exception isn't everybody, you know? I think that's why he mentions it to Paul. He mentions Paul's because that's an abnormality. Just like you did with Jonah. Jonah, please. All right, sure. I think we're going to have to stand up here. Um, really enjoyed this debate. Everyone I've seen in the comments was really enjoying this as well. This was a great discussion, guys. I'd encourage everyone, if you don't follow Robbie Lashua, there's links 
in the description down below for the Christ Culture and Coffee podcast. Really great podcast, worth the time. And I know Vocab Malone is probably more interested in engaging in Islam or Black Hebrew, Israelitism. Don't forget the Mormons. Or the Mormons. <laughs> Don't yeah, forget the Mormons. Days ago. Um, but really appreciate Vocab's time as well. There's links for Vocab Malone on YouTube. I'd encourage you to subscribe. And if you're new here to adhere in apologetics, I encourage you to leave a like, subscribe, and all that stuff. Uh, Robbie, Vocab, thank you so much for your time, guys. We, I really enjoyed the debate, and I'm sure everyone else did as well. Can yeah, I ask thanks. Robbie real quick, what what do you got coming up, bro? Like, is there anything popping in Arizona or anything you got online? What, well, COVID's up, like put us, you know, COVID's uh, yeah, put stuff to everything, asking, man. Yeah, yeah, no, like there's, there's, I don't know if you know about this. There's like an apologetics conference in Tucson at the end of October. Have you oh, heard yeah, about this? Oh, is it physical? It's physical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's online too. But I'm going to go down to that. I'm not, I'm not doing anything at that. I'm just going to go. That. Yeah, I'm going to go. You should who, go. Let's who hang you out. going with? Who are you going with? Uh, my admin assistant, Jake, him and I are going to go down there. Oh, so if you want to go and hang out, that'd be fun. I'm going with my admin assistant. I don't know what else to call him. He's my friend. I'm going with my well, friend. Well, I'll bring yeah. I'll bring my um I'll bring my hairstylist and my yeah. robe consultant. Have your people we call my people. caravan. <laughs> it took so much work to like contact these guys agents to like set up this debate. Oh right? yeah. Oh yeah. So that's, I don't really wanna, that's that's really because I don't want to debate Calvinism. I was trying to just ignore yeah. you, see if you go away. <laughs> yeah. You're the one who said you wanted to, and I mean, in, in your views, God foreordained it. So you know, it's kind of <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't mean I want to. He's dragging <laughs> me, kicking and screaming, just like salvation. <laughs> it was predestined, man. It had to happen. But hey, also like I think vocab that is important to note. Like this is an in-house debate. You're a believer. I'm a believer, man. I even think Zach's a believer, to be honest. So. <laughs> Yeah. So even those last again, names, secular. Yes, yeah, secular. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so it's good to it's good to distinguish that. But man, we really do need to go out and talk with the Mormons and the Muslims and the Black Hebrew Israelites because man, they're lost and they need the gospel. That's for sure. Amen. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk about October because I, I, I did see that, so I do want to look into that. I, thanks for reminding me. Actually, that's why I'm glad I asked you. Thanks, yeah. Zach, for hosting this. Keep on doing what you do, bro. Thank yeah. You thanks, Zach. Thanks, Vocab. Encourage you to follow Robbie and Vocab. Have a good one, everyone. God bless. Bye.